Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Simon Long, an editor here at The Economist. On today's show, how a diverse workforce can help companies break out of their echo chamber. We become more creative when we expose ourselves to more diverse influences. And what does it take to be the world's best poker player? Study a lot, watch what the other players are doing, and yeah, not expect that you're going to go from zero to hero anytime soon. But first, relationship trouble is brewing between nations in the Eurozone. The sovereign debt crisis that first struck the zone a decade ago created tension between its northern and southern members. People in the northern countries, like Germany and the Netherlands, felt they were bailing out irresponsible southerners, like the Greeks, the Spaniards and the Portuguese. And those fears haven't gone away. Some Eurozone politicians want to stall plans for further banking and fiscal integration. And some critics say that the European Central Bank's latest round of monetary policy easing is aimed squarely at benefiting southerners. Well, observing this slanging match is Rachina Schamburg, the Economist's Europe economics correspondent. Hello, Rachina. Hi, Simon. To start with, do the Northerners have a point? What, what is the current state of play in terms of the integration of the Eurozone? Well, things have both changed and they haven't changed. If you look, for example, at the state of the Eurozone, um, there are still huge income disparities between northern countries and the southern countries. Um, unemployment's very high in the south compared with um, levels of about 3% in the north. So that sort of picture hasn't changed. We haven't seen a huge amount of convergence between the two parties. And here I'm talking specifically about the early joiners of the euro rather than the eastern European countries where there has been some convergence. Um, but what has changed is that a lot of the southern countries in the run-up to the crisis were reliant on a lot of capital flows from the north and that fueled overconsumption by the Greek government and the real estate sector in Spain and Ireland, for example. However, since the crisis, a lot of those imbalances have gone away. So why are the northerners still so worried? I think part of it is a worry that they risk a repeat occurrence. So any further integration might lead to another build-up of imbalances and another crisis. So when I was in Amsterdam last month, I heard the phrase moral hazard a lot. So northerners are often very worried that they're going to be encouraging bad behaviour in the south. And the latest manifestation of all these rows, as you said, is the ECB's decision to resume quantitative easing where opposition to the decision has really been split along north-south lines. The concern being that a laxer monetary policy will again get these southern nations into bad habits. Yes, that's right. So particularly um, lower interest rates for heavily indebted southern countries might make them feel that they're off the hook and they don't need to do any reforms. 
But the root cause of the problem, you seem to be hinting, is the lack of convergence between the South and the North. And presumably for that to happen, you need the South to grow at a faster rate, and it would need a looser monetary policy. That's right. I mean, the other thing that's happened is as the South has rebalanced and sort of tried to regain its competitiveness, inflation there has been quite low. And so inflation across the Eurozone as a whole has been below the ECB's target. So um, absolutely, there needs to be some uh, loosening of monetary policy. And I think perhaps the Northerners might not fully take into account the fact that loose monetary policy has helped them as well. The euro is weaker when the ECB is loosening policy. And because northern countries are very sort of export-oriented, that's benefited them. We're talking quite loosely about northerners and southerners, but when we say northerners, do we basically mean Germany and the Netherlands, or is it broader than that? Certainly criticism of the ECB right now has been loudest in Germany and the Netherlands, but it also extends to countries such as Austria, um, you know, the Eastern Europeans tend to be quite hawkish on these sorts of issues as well. And when I talk about the Southerners, I'm typically referring to um, Greece and Portugal and Spain, but also Italy. Um, the big question is where France goes. France is often thought of as the as the average Eurozone country, but in some ways France is like a Southern country. It still runs a current account deficit. It has very high public debt. From what you say then, it sounds almost as if the South has the upper hand, at least in terms of numbers. If you include France and the South in inverted commas, then you end up with three of the four largest euro area countries being in the South. But a lot of these sorts of decisions on reform and integration don't really get done by a simple uh, majority vote. You know, in the European Council, a lot of it is driven by consensus. There are quite a few small northern states that have been very vocal, in fact, even stricter than than Germany on, on matters such as, you know, a common budget for the euro area. So having the weight of numbers behind you doesn't necessarily mean that there'll be progress made in the direction that you want it to be made. But to the extent that this battle is being fought over monetary policy, presumably the position of the European Central Bank and its new head, Christine Lagarde, is going to be crucial. What do we know of where she stands in all this? Well, she said relatively little so far in her role. Um, to be fair, her first working day as president of the ECB was on the 4th of November. She gave a speech, but it was not to do with monetary policy specifically. What we do know suggests that her views will represent a continuation of her predecessor, Mario Draghi's views on monetary policy. That suggests that it will mean putting a greater weight on the fact that inflation is low and continuing with policies to boost demand that the northerners regard as sort of being unfair and, and subsidising the south, but in fact is necessary for the eurozone as a whole to grow. So these complaints that we've seen again recently from the Northerners are likely to continue and grow louder. That's almost certainly right, I think. Um, uh, the ECB restarted its asset purchases on the 1st of November. And so at the moment, the commitment is that those purchases will continue until inflation shows a, a meaningful sort of recovery. It's very stubbornly low at the moment. So there's plenty of time for the Northerners to um, to complain. Ms Lagarde has said that she'll review the ECB strategy and that might be a focal point for the complaints because both the hawks and the doves will want to shape it in a particular way. Russian Schoenberg, thank you very much. Simon, thank you. You can read more about the distrust between the Northern and Southern European states in the forthcoming edition of The Economist. And to try a subscription, go to economist.com slash radio offer where you can get 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
Next, it's more than likely that at some point in your professional career, you've been invited to a brainstorm to try and come up with fresh new ideas. But do activities like this really get the best out of your organisation? Well, if you're not brainstorming with a diverse group of people, perhaps not. Matthew Syed is a journalist and author. Once England's table tennis champion, he now writes books about what it takes to be successful. His latest, called Rebel Ideas, The Power of Diverse Thinking, looks at how what he calls cognitive diversity can help people think more creatively. Philip Coggan, who writes The Economist's Bartleby column, interviewed Matthew and started by asking him to define cognitive diversity. When we talk about diversity, we often think about it in demographic terms. Differences in race, in gender, in social class, in age, in sexual orientation. But the concept that you mentioned is cognitive diversity. This is differences in the way people think, different insights and perspectives. Differences also in thinking styles. Some people are more analytical, others are more holistic or contextual. There's obviously an overlap between these two things in certain contexts. If you're putting together a team to come up with an advertising campaign for a broad demographic of people, then if all of the people in that creative team are white, middle-aged, middle-class, private school-educated Oxbridge graduates, it's not inconceivable they may miss opportunities to connect that campaign with people who are demographically very different, whose lives are very different from their own. But I think there are other contexts where the overlap is almost non-existent. Um, if you're putting together a team to design an aircraft engine, uh, the fact that I'm mixed race, half Pakistani and half Welsh, is not going to give me any particularly germane insights into how tweaking the design of the engine might improve its aerodynamism. So one of the major claims in the book is that we have reduced diversity to a box-ticking exercise, and this is a gigantic red herring. Diversity is an absolutely key ingredient of the collective intelligence of human groups when it's properly optimised. And you give a good example about the CIA in the run-up to 9-11, that they failed to spot signs that an attack might be coming. They hired very intelligent, very talented individuals. They had quite robust metrics to measure the analytical skill, but they were looking at them individual by individual. And it turned out that all of these highly intelligent individuals were white, uh, Protestant, West Coast, liberal arts graduates. And they were all men. And this is a common phenomenon, by the way, sometimes called homophily. We are attracted unconsciously to people who think and often look like ourselves. Brain scanners show that the pleasure centres of our brains light up when people are telling things we already know. Um, you're, you're so right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Now I'm very high in pleasure. Um, but the problem, of course, is when there's a complex problem, no single perspective, no single point of view is sufficient. That's why we have teams in the first place. So all of these individuals were bright, but they shared the same blind spots. And I argue that this is the reason why they completely failed to spot the 9-11 plot. Now, it's not just getting the right people assembled, is it? Because one of the examples you quote from business is a study uh, from Rotterdam, which shows that projects which were run by junior managers were more successful than those run by senior managers. Now, why do you think that might be? You would have thought that having the senior person in the room would add to the group. But that often comes at a price if the people who are more junior don't say what they truly think, but what they think the leader wants to hear. 
And these dominance dynamics that are particularly prevalent in very hierarchical institutions shrink the collective intelligence of the group effectively to just one brain, the alpha. So there's a a range of techniques, um, and this is about creating this condition called psychological safety, which you refer to. Not having the senior person give their opinion first, for example, is a classic one. So how do you create the condition of psychological safety? So this is a well-established cultural phenomenon where people feel they can offer their view without being punitively sanctioned if it diverges from the leader. Now, this is incredibly important, but when people hear that you need to have institutions that are psychologically safe, people often think that sounds like a very meek environment. Properly psychological safe are dynamic environments. They're challenging environments. You express an opinion, it's challenged. The idea is challenged, not your self-worth for having disagreed with what the person slightly higher up the hierarchy might have said. We typically think of brainstorming as a way to do things. The problem with that is people often converge upon whatever the leader is saying. An alternative technique, which has been corroborated by randomized controlled trials, is brain writing where people write their ideas down on a card and then post it on a wall. But because nobody knows who has posted the ideas, it creates a meritocracy of ideas. And then you might vote on them and take them to the next level in smaller groups. That can be a powerful way to, as it were, mitigate the sociological risks associated with hierarchy dynamics. Now, this collaborative approach you write in a number of ways, and uh, you were involved in it, of course, in helping the England football team get a bit better after 2016. But you say that it's shown up in particular academia and in patent filings. How has that worked? A good way to think about it is when it comes to innovation, patents and science, almost all of this is happening in teams now. But if you just think about it conceptually for a second, if you put a team of 10 people together in your company to come up with great ideas for the next five years of the business. And each of these 10 individuals comes up with 10 genuinely brilliant ideas. How many brilliant ideas do you have in total? The natural response is 100. But of course, if these people are cognitively similar and they came up with the same 10 ideas, you only have 10 overall. If they're cognitively diverse and come up with different ideas from one another, you could have 100 brilliant ideas. Now, this is interesting because you have two teams comprised of individuals who are equally talented, but one is almost a 1,000% more creative. And you mentioned how many immigrants in the US, for example, founded big companies, a lot of the Fortune 500, or more of them start businesses because they come from outside and can see opportunities that insiders might not realise. Exactly. And, and I think this is a lesson for individuals is we tend to be, I mean, this is a really robust finding in psychology that we become more creative when we expose ourselves to more diverse influences. So the immigrant example is a classic one. Somebody, an immigrant or children of immigrants are more entrepreneurial and create a disproportionate number of big companies. And I think one of the reasons is an immigrant comes to a new culture and doesn't see the conventions as immutable because they've seen something a bit different. So they see these things as potentially reformable, adaptable and breakable. And I think the other reason is they can bring ideas from two disparate cultures together to create that cross-pollination, ideas having sex, as Matt Ridley uh, once called it. Um, But I think we can all have that outsider mindset because we can get trapped by our paradigms. A classic example, if we take industrial history, was the Industrial Revolution, 
where the second phase was electrification, which offered massive advantages for the industrial trusts that dominated the market at the time. And they had a steam engine in the middle of a factory connected to the machines via this very unreliable and elaborate section of pulleys and levers and crankshafts and so on. So suddenly you've got electricity. So potentially they can put a little motor in every single machine and then streamline the factory cutting costs and harvesting huge new profits. But it's interesting that the incumbent trusts after electrification, most of them went bust. And the reason is the basic assumption was about the steam engine. So they got this big, vast electric motor, stuck it in the middle of the factory and pretended it was a substitute steam engine. And it was only those who were prepared to think outside that paradigm who actually saw the opportunities. Matthew Syed, thank you very much. Thank you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And finally, what does it take to become the world's best poker player? Bryn Kenny is a professional player and entrepreneur from Long Beach, New York. Early this year, he won over $20 million. The win took his total earnings in poker to over $50 million, and he now tops the all-time money list. The Economist Wall Street correspondent Alice Fullwood met Bryn to play a hand and to find out how he became one of the world's greatest players. Do you want to throw down a couple of hands and just show me how good you are at shuffling? I guess you'll yeah, probably be like I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm good at shuffling. My grandma taught me shuffling. <laughs> she loves playing cards. Yeah. She's not so good at poker, but no. she likes to play like gin and oh, yeah? different types of cards. Basically, yeah, all different. My, both of my, actually my grandpa and my grandma on different sides, they both like cards. Mm-hmm. So I guess, yeah, cards are just baseball and basketball cards I would collect when I was younger too so it was all about cards so let's say you would have a hundred chips or something uh-huh. and the blinds would be one and two and there's multiple different rounds of betting so mm-hmm. let's say if that were the case see I have like one of the worst hands so I would just okay. give up my hand here you have a seven and a three I have a king so like and a nine. heads up, like, that's a good hand. That's a good hand. So now if we were playing, like, a nine-handed tournament, it wouldn't actually be a good hand. But the value of the hand always goes up with the less amount of players. Okay. So in this, like, it would be pretty unplayable except from late position uh, in if we were playing a nine-handed table. But in a heads-up one-on-one, it's very strong. Okay, so a nine-handed table, you mean by nine players at a table all playing together? Yeah, because then you want hands that work better with themselves, like Mm -hmm. better suited, that connect with each other, Okay. like seven, eight suited or so, because these hands can make like flushes and straights. You need hands with good chances to knock out like the strong hands, like let's say aces or kings or so. Right. If you want to play other hands that aren't as strong, you want them to be able to hit strong hands. Okay. So now here, this hand is a good hand to raise with. 
I have a seven and a nine, both spades. Like even if I would re-raise, you would call with this hand and see a flop come out then. Okay. But this hand's complete garbage, so we're just. I'm just. So getting you have a three of spades and a five. Another, of another time that you would just have to fold. You would just fold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So maybe we should just take some cards out of the deck. (laughs) How often do you fold, then? Like, when you play heads up, you play probably about 70 or 80% of your hands when you're playing heads up, like, before the flop, and then it gets to less. Because even a hand that's not very good, like uh, a hand, let's say, like, 8-5 of different suits, like, Mm -hmm. this hand isn't very good. But, but if another hand raises, you would still call with this hand from the big blind. Okay. Or you could even raise with this. Like, this is still a playable hand when there's two people, where it's almost never really a playable hand when mm-hmm. it's a full table. Um, so it's a jack of hearts, a queen of clubs, a queen of diamonds, a four of spades, and a ten of spades. And I have a ten of hearts and a jack of spades. And Bryn has a nine of spades and an ace of hearts. So I have the better hand, but he's saying that he might have been going for something better and so the only way you can beat me see some people would call with this jack 10 hand and some people wouldn't mm-hmm. so then it comes to trying to bluff the guys who wouldn't call with this hand and not bluff the guys who would do you think that i would what do yeah you, i think what, i think at, fir- at first you would probably call because you weren't sure about what you were doing so that's why it's dangerous it makes it where you have to pick like properly of who you're gonna bluff where if someone really doesn't play the game much, it might look like a much stronger hand than it actually is. Yeah. So it can be hard to play against amateurs because they will potentially do stuff that the pros wouldn't. Yeah, so it's all about like evaluating a person. Mm-hmm. So why don't we talk about this sort of this recent tournament in London in August where you won $20 million. How did that happen? Because you came second, right? So yeah. how, how did you win the most money but come second? So we had just gotten heads up and I knocked out the guy who was in fourth and third and I think even fifth I was just on a run where I had I think I had four four to one, so four times the amount of chips that uh that my opponent had uh when we got heads up. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times what you can do is you can make a deal uh splitting the money that you're still playing for. Mm-hmm. So you would take uh second place money away from both people. Like imagine that both people get second uh, calculate how much money is left and you would get money based on the amount of chips that you have. So in this spot, we're playing for so much. So I just had so much adrenaline and I had put so many feelings like down for so long that when I got to heads up and I was officially the biggest winner of all time, like I felt like I, something changed even a little bit too. Like I could breathe a little where I was in this, uh, trance like this tense-ish but super relaxed trance that I couldn't eat couldn't really sleep but fortunately was in like the right level to play and just not to care about any of that and what is it that you think you need to be good at poker versus sort of other types of strategy games Uh, I think it's like completely different because it takes so much mental strength where let's say you can build yourself up to a point where Mm. You've become really successful. People treat you differently when you're successful. So now all of a sudden you might build this uh, confidence Mm -hmm. that's not even really there. It's kind of a false sense of confidence. This has started to mess with a lot of people's heads, actually, this fake confidence and then hitting a low point and not being able to take it, really. I never really care what anybody thinks about me. I do what I think is right. I judge myself harder than I think anyone else judges themselves. So So is it more about getting to know the people on the circuit or is it more about your sort of 
It's a, it's a lot about both. Skills. It's about like owning your craft, like just by playing cards, being in a good mindset, just so that you can make good decisions for long periods straight. Mm-hmm. And then at high stakes, it's about knowing the people and trying to formulate a strategy of how you could be at the type of strategy that they have. And finally, what are your best tips for people who want to play? Best tips is I would say don't imagine that anything comes easy. If you want to be good at something that like a lot of people want to be good at, like poker, you have to put everything into it. So, I mean, my tips would be study a lot, watch what the other players are doing who are doing the best in the games that you're playing or doing. And, yeah, not expect that you're going to go from zero to hero anytime soon. Like, expect that to become great at anything takes a lot of work and blood, sweat, and tears. Was that answer a bluff? No, (laughs) not this time. (laughs) Great. Uh, Thank you so much, Bryn. It was really lovely to meet you. Yeah, awesome talking to you. Thanks for having me. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.